Conversations. Good day, everybody, and welcome back to Med Conversations. I'm joined here with Scott. Hello, everyone. I think this is the first time it's just been you and me, Scott. Yeah. Let's see how the dynamic goes. Spot. It's cracking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much There's romance. Chemistry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> All right, so we're going to talk about acute diagnosis and treatment of stroke. We've just done a podcast a couple of weeks ago on stroke syndrome, so I'd recommend you have a listen to that first um, before you listen to this one. Basically, we're going to talk about uh, the brief history you do, the brief exam, what imaging, and then how you acutely treat a stroke. Yeah, and don't worry about the epidemiology and etiology and that kind of thing, because Dava will be dropping some more knowledge on us next week. Yeah, so everything in stroke because it's so acute is in reverse. You've got to think time is brain, so you worry about what's caused the stroke later down the track. So we've kind of done them in order of how you actually think about it with a real patient with strokes. All right, so let's um, let's go back to Anne. I think that's what we named her. I can't remember. One of our cases from, from the last podcast. She was the 55-year-old who'd had a recent aortic valve repair, and she basically presented with decreased conscious state. And you thought maybe some aphasia, or it could have been aphasia rather than decreased conscious state, and there might have been some weakness on the right-hand side. So if you were if you were the, the doctor in ED, what would you do here next, Scott? Well, the first thing would be um, is you'd call a code stroke Absolutely. if you're in a place that has that kind of sequence mapped out, which most places should. You'd, you'd hope so in this yeah. day and age. Yeah, so strokes are, strokes are much like... Um, MIs, myocardial infarctions, you don't sit there going through their full family tree and every country they've been to in the last two years. Time is brain, call the code stroke, and then organize for the patient to get to the scanner because that's how you're going to diagnose it. History and exam is great, but ultimately they're going to need a scan. And so then on the way to the scanner, um, you take basically an abbreviated history. Of course, once you've done your Dr. ABCD, Uh, Check that their stroke isn't from something causing them acute trauma. No one's punching them in the head or, you know, just really kind of key. That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah. So airway comes before before the CT scanner. Presumably, if you're taking a history, there's (laughs) (laughs) some control of their airway, we would hope. But just, uh, you know, just for exams, I guess. So literally, while the trolley is being wheeled to the CT scanner or while you're waiting for the radiographer... um, you can you can take a bit of a history. So what's what's like the key thing you've got to get out? So your neurologist will be down in a few minutes and they're going to ask you a few questions and they're not going to care what country they've been to. There's a few key things. So what would be the first one, you reckon, Scott? Yeah, I think this is probably the most key question of any history, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but onset is really what you want to know about. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Particularly with stroke because it's going to dictate what you do. And it's going to dictate whether you call the code stroke, actually. So I should say... Yeah, before you call the code stroke on hand, check the onset. Because if it's beyond six hours, which is the window for clot retrieval, we're not going to treat them so it's not a code stroke. And Dava, what if someone wakes up with a stroke? How do you time their stroke then? Yeah, so unfortunately you've got to time it from when they were last well. You can't kind of guess the middle of the night or whatever. So if they went to bed at 10 p.m. and they wake up at 8 a.m. with a stroke, they're well outside the window so you don't call the code stroke. Yep. so you would say whatever it is 10 hours from when they were last normal that's exactly that's right, just yeah. the definition of when you would um help like the onset that you exactly, would give yeah. yeah yeah wake up strokes are a terrible thing um so the other when you're asking about the onset um so you, you want to know when it happened but you also want to know the nature of the onset because the the word stroke comes from the zero to 100 
rapid onset. So it happens all of a sudden. It's not a hard and fast rule and you should still get a CT scan. But if it's a progressive course where, you know, first my hand was affected, then my elbow and then my shoulder, um, you know, that makes something like a migraine much more likely and less likely to be stroke. But yeah, not hard and fast rule, but the nature of the onset is important as well. So you've got the onset. And then the next question, of course, is what are the actual symptoms? And uh, if you've listened to our previous podcast on stroke syndromes, you'll know you know, which symptoms make sense for it to be a stroke. So if they've got, you know, right-sided weakness and dysphasia and, you know, they can't see half their vision, you know, there's not many things that can cause that apart from a stroke. So cluster them together. Um, so then, and the- just to go through some of the other symptoms you'd ask for in this very abbreviated history double, if you had, you know, five or six symptom questions, how would you direct it? Yeah, so, would I, w- you ask? so I would ask for weakness, yep. numbness, language difficulty, vision difficulty, um and maybe swallowing difficulty in there as well that would probably cover all of it anything else you can think of no they seem like good ones yeah yeah all right so you've got onset you've asked about symptoms and then the next question which might surprise some of you who see this as kind of like a gen med um, waste of time kind of thing but functional status is really important in stroke as well because once again it's going to dictate how you treat them if they're a nursing home patient with high level care needs it's going to be very different to, you know, a young 50-year-old who looks after their three kids. So how do we how do we ask about functional status in stroke? Is there some kind of scale that's standardized that you could easily communicate mm, the information you've good, got in? Something's coming to mind, <laughs> the modified Rankin scale. Yeah, so stroke people have come up with their own scale, the MRS scale. Um, and it, it's basically a zero to six scale when zero is perfectly normal and six is dead. Um, and it and it quantifies very quickly, you know, what their function is like. And the, you don't need to know the whole scale in detail, but the watershed point is between two and three. So MRS two, they have disability, but they're still able to live independently. But at three, they're starting to need help. So that's a real, you know, watershed thing in the scale. All right. So then, so when we say independence, we're talking about independence with you know activities of daily living, like. Yeah, themselves, not, in, eating, not, not yeah. independence of thought. Like, yeah. <laughs> they vote for the same political party as their parents. Yeah, yeah um, ADLs, basically. Yeah. All right, so then you, you're onto the past history. So you want to get a general sense, of course, of how well they are, but there's some very precise questions that we're particularly interested in with the past history. Scott, what are they? Well, the most important question you want to know is whether they're on anti, anticoagulants and whether they've got any contraindications of thrombolysis. Yeah, so whether they've had recent bleeds, recent intracranial things that might, um, you know, put them at increased risk of bleeding. We'll go through the contraindication list uh, later. But yeah, most of your past history questions should be directed to, is this someone we can thrombolize? Um, and another good, another question that people often want to know when they come down for the code stroke is, what's their renal function like? It's mo- mostly for the radiographers, really. Um, because if they've got really poor renal function, you might think twice about putting putting through contrast for a CT angiogram. That being said, though, you can always fix that. Um, and a stroke is obviously one of the worst things that can happen to someone. And so you're not going to not not scan them if you've got a really um, high clinical suspicion just because of their EGFR. Mm, would you prefer your brain or your kidneys? Yeah, Probably exactly. your brain exactly. is the answer there. So yeah, these are the really key features that you know a neurologist would be really grateful to an ED intern or someone that can quickly tell them those four things when they come down. But if you're still going to be involved in the code stroke, the, the history is an ongoing process, and you should keep you know finding out more details 
as you go. So, you know, while the patient's in the scan, often I'm talking to the, you know, to the wife or the or the next of kin about what exactly happened. And then you're kind of really trying to nail down, is this a true stroke or is it a stroke mimic? Because if it's a normal scan, that doesn't mean they don't have a stroke. And then you're going to really rely on the history. Do I thrombolize this person purely based on, on their symptoms or do I think it's more likely to be some kind of stroke mimic? And those differences can be really subtle. So, so you said migraine before. Are there any other kind of common stroke mimics you'd be trying to rule out? Yeah, so the major stroke mimics to consider um, are probably migraine um, is the commonest I've seen. Um, seizures is a really common one as well with Todd's paresis on, on weakness on one side. Functional is really, um, really common as well. So if, by functional, I mean it's not on a organic um, brain pathology that we know. It's more related to psychological distress of some type. Um, some kind of infection is quite common as well. So delirium often can um, can be mistaken as a stroke. Um, yeah. Cool. Yep. All right. So you've done the history um, and then the examination as well. So this is, again, something you do on the way to the CT scanner while the patient is in the trolley. So it's not something you hold up the scan for, but you should be able to get quite a lot of really important information out quickly. So it's not, it's not a... Again, it's not the time where you look for two-point discrimination and stereognosis or anything like that. It's really streamlined, big, important stuff. Is there is there a scale here that could help us? There is. <laughs> Hopefully, you guys have heard about it before. It's called the NIHSS scale. Yeah, so the National Institute of Health Stroke Scale, and that's kind of the internationally accepted way of working up um, whether someone's had a stroke and the severity of that stroke. Um, so having said that, it's not a perfect system. There's not going to be robots that take over our jobs with the NHSS quite yet because it's really bad at picking up posterior circulation strokes. So if you're suspecting that they've had a basal or a vertebral artery stroke, um, don't rely on the NHSS too much. All right, let's go on to the scale, Scott. So there's 11 different categories and the patient's going to get a score. And for each category, a score of zero means that there's no change from normal. So zero would be normal. And the scores can be up to um, three or four for some of them. So we'll go through them. And Davo will also use his um, own very large brain, which hasn't been affected by a stroke recently, to go through some of the kinds of strokes that might cause these changes. So the first category is level of consciousness. So zero being alert and three being in a coma two being stuporous and one being drowsy, just to give some examples of how it's scored mm. and what kind of strokes would affect level of consciousness. So yeah, often a hemorrhagic stroke would be more likely to affect consciousness rather than a ischemic one. But uh, the ischemic ones that do basal stroke, as we said, so often they're um, completely in a coma. Um, and then a proximal MCA stroke can often make people quite drowsy, as was the case with Anne, actually, our patient. Cool. And then we asked them a couple of orientation questions. We asked them two specific questions. We asked them what month it is, and we asked them how old they are. So that, that could be because they're drowsy, that they get that wrong, or it could be because they've got a language deficit. Yep, and we score it based on whether they get zero, one, or both answers mm. right. So the next, we asked them to open and close their eyes and make them fist or, and let go. So we're um, asking them to follow commands. And what could impair that ability so same kind of thing drowsiness or receptive dysphagia from an mca stroke could could cause an issue there yep so next we um assess their gaze um so we take them through the old h and check for any deviation and what could cause a problem there so that's usually an mca stroke again that causes gaze deviation 
Interesting point about a stroke mimic here. So seizures can cause gaze deviation as well, but it's the opposite way to um, to stroke. So with a stroke, a patient will be looking away from their side of the weakness, uh, but a seizure they'll often be looking towards. Mm, a little tidbit there. Mm. Um, and so next you want to check the visual fields. Yeah, so hemianopia, homonymous hemianopia. Uh, so that's an MCA stroke or a PCA stroke affecting the occipital lobe. And then you've got your quadratinopias uh, that are usually M2 strokes. But remember the opposite way. So if you've got a superior quadratinopia, that's an inferior M2 stroke affecting the temporal lobe and, uh, and the opposite as well. All right, so what's the next one? Uh, so category four, facial paresis. So that's usually an MCA stroke causing facial droop. Yep, so you just get them to raise their eyebrows, show their teeth, squeeze their eyes mm. shut. And the next test, you're testing arm motor function. So you get them to elevate the arms 90 degrees and mm. try and hold it. Mm. So for 10 seconds. And um, what, what kind of stroke would affect so, that? So that's usually an yeah, MCA stroke or it can be potentially a brainstem stroke as well. Yeah. Or I guess potentially a lacuna stroke as well, if it's the internal capsule. Yep. So leg, so you get them to elevate their leg to 30 degrees with the patient's supine and try and hold it there yeah. for five, five, five se- seconds. Yeah, it's only yep. five seconds. So yeah, they're beautiful. It's always such a relief um, when you're doing it in NHSS. You don't have to test every muscle group. Can they lift up their arms or legs, mm. basically? Yeah. So I guess that's one of the key points here. You're not going through your full normal power exam because yeah. time is brain. Mm. So you're just going through this kind of abbreviated motor yeah, exam. Exactly. So the next test, you're testing for ataxia. So you're testing their coordination with the finger, nose, and the heel, shin test. So that'll be a posterior circulation stroke that's done that. So like a posterior inferior cerebellar artery stroke would be the most common. You've knocked out your cerebellum somehow. Yeah. So then you do a quick sensory examination. So pinprick to face, arm, trunk, and leg. Yeah. Often, often not even with pinprick. To be honest, people will usually just touch the patient yeah. or pinch them. It's not not such a big deal. Um, so that can be MCA stroke again, or or a brainstem stroke, or even a lacuna stroke. Uh, but yeah, that, that's not a big part of it. I'd say um, if someone has no other signs apart from sensation. You, you might even think twice about thrombolizing them, really. Okay. And um, the next category, nine, best yeah, assessing their language for aphasia. Yeah, so that's that. You might have seen them. So that, that sheet um, that comes with the NHSS, I've got one on my phone as well. Basically, ask them to describe a scene and then name a whole bunch of objects and also read some phrases on the back of it. So it's quite a useful thing to have. Yep, so then dysarthria, which is something you should have noticed throughout the exam. Yeah, exactly. So that's that can be any type of weakness. So often that can be brainstem or it can be MCA stroke. And lastly, extinction and inattention, checking for neglect. Yeah, so that's MCA stroke again. So, yeah, so for that one, um, if, you don't have, if it hasn't kind of come up previously, you can do some kind of simultaneous stimuli testing on both sides and mm. try and see if it's there. Yeah, exactly. So that was a lot of information that almost re-summarize a large proportion of the last podcast, but it's, it's good stuff to slowly start sinking in. Mm. Um, so just to go through it again, um, Davil, can you tell me the 11 categories on the NIHSS scale? So level of consciousness, alert or drowsy, uh, level of consciousness questions, so ask them their month and age, uh, level of consciousness command, so ask them to make a fist or something like that, gaze, visual fields, Facial paresis, arm weakness, leg weakness, 
Lim ataxia, sensation, language, dysarthria, uh, and extinction and inattention. And if you can't remember all of that by now, you're probably n- never going to make a good doctor. Yeah, you should probably just give up. Yeah, just, quit, yeah. quit now. No, I still use an app. So <laughs> <laughs> just use MDCalc or something as you're going through it, especially in an acute situation. It's pretty hard to think about all this stuff. So use an app. Yeah, and you'll be more systematic if you've got something in front of you than exactly, trying to yeah. wing it. Yeah, yeah. Me Doogie Hauser. <laughs> and yeah, the neurology team will really appreciate having a good NHSS um, score done when they first come in. It's really useful to track their progress down the line, how they've responded to different things. All right, so let's summarize what you do on the way to the CT scanner. Scott, when, you, when you're taking your history, what are you particularly interested in? So the number one thing you're interested in is onset. Mm-hmm. You're also trying to get a general idea of the patient's condition and functional status and if they have any contraindications of thrombolysis. Yeah, but then you once you've got those key points and have communicated them to the stroke team, you keep taking a more detailed history. And then the other thing you do on the way to the scanner is the NIHSS or between scans even. So that's those 11 items we just talked about. All right, so we've got to the scanner, this fabled place, the, the tunnel of truth. <laughs> so is that a double or... <laughs> name for it or is that <laughs> should brand name that you could kind of you know yeah, use that in your future practice put it, put it on top of the scanner yeah all right so the first one you're going to do is a plain brain a plain ct brain so no contrast and the main point of this scan so plain ct brain what's the what's the number one question you're asking yourself as you're flicking through those images quickly so you're trying to work out if there's a hemorrhage there because if it's a hemorrhage, you're not going to thrombolize them. So that's and that's why we can never thrombolize strokes on spec because it could always be a hemorrhage. So it could be uh, an intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, so either a lobe or basal ganglia hemorrhage. So that's called an ICH, um, and that's a bit different to an intracranial hemorrhage, which refers to anything inside the brain vault. Intracerebral is when it's in the actual parenchyma itself. Um, It could be a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And this is quite subtle to actually look at on a CT brain. Mm. It takes a bit of practice. Um, And then it could be extraaxial as well. It could be a subdural or an epidural um, hemorrhage. And this is a really important point, actually. I've seen this missed before and patients have been thrombolized with um, disastrous consequences. You still have to really carefully look for this stuff, even if it's a massive stroke clinically, um, because even a small subdural will still be a contraindication to thrombolysis, even if an ischemic stroke is the cause of the actual symptom. So you might be like, well, if it was a subdural, it'd have to be a massive one, was it so unwell? You still need to look really carefully for that sliver mm. around the brain because they might have had a big ischemic stroke, had a fall, and got a small subdural, which now means you can't thrombolize them. Yeah, and should probably be either a formal radiology report or a consultant at least checking Absolutely. some of the images. It shouldn't just be off a... Someone with a couple of years' experience yeah. starting the zone bleed in there. Because some of them are obvious and some of them can be really tough to see. Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, and but you, So hemorrhage is the main question you're asking yourself. But you can still see signs of an ischemic stroke in a plain CT brain as well. So what are they? So you can see a hyperdense artery. And um, if you look into strokes, I don't know if we'll talk about it next week or not, but um, the density will change um, through the point. And in if there's a clot, that will be hyperdense. Mm. And often um, when you're flicking off clots from the um, from the heart, because those clots are rolled, they're already hyperdense and they can lodge in there and you can see the difference there. Yeah, exactly. 
The other thing you can look for on a plain CT brain for an ischemic stroke is loss of grey-white differentiation. So usually on a CT brain, if you look at a few, you can see the difference between the grey matter and the white matter, the difference between the cortex and the subcortex. And you lose that demarcation with an ischemic stroke as time goes on and brain starts to die. The best place to look for it is the insular ribbon. So the loss of the insular ribbon sign. I'd reckon, like, there's no way you'll be able to <laughs> grok this just listening to me talk on a podcast. So I'd recommend you have a look at it online. Yeah, just Google insular ribbon yeah, and you'll get some exactly come up. Yeah, but uh, it's a basically a narrow ribbon of the of the um, of the cortex that you, you lose if um, with an MCA stroke. And it's one of the first places to go, so it's a, what, the best place to look for this, basically. It can happen within one hour, but uh, and 70% of MCA patients will have lost that insular ribbon within the first three hours. Another obvious point worth repeating is if you're having trouble looking at it because there's a lot of squiggles going everywhere, remember symmetry is the easiest kind of principle of, kind of radiography. So it, exactly, look at both yeah. sides, and most strokes should be single-sided unless there's kind of a on, kind of a, a embolic cardi, you know... Yeah, yeah, exactly. From but even then, it will still be asymmetrical. You're pretty yeah. unlucky to have the exact stroke, um, same stroke on both sides. Yeah. All right, so that's the CT brain. Um, and then the CT angiogram is the next scan. So that's putting contrast into the arteries. Really good practical point about CTAs is that you need a wide bore cannula, so a green cannula on 18 gauge in the cubital fossa for this scan to work properly. So a really good thing to do when you're standing around in the the stroke team feeling useless is put in a cannula in that mm. cubital fossa so things can proceed quickly with time as brain. So that's that's the big, <clears throat> big one because usually it's a kind of a 20 or a 22 that kind of mm. the most used cannulas on mm. the ward. So the 18 is one of the wider bore ones there. I had a lot of nerve-wracking moments as an intern putting in really big cannulas in, in cubital fossas while all the neurology consultants were watching me impatiently. Uh, good motivation to learn to do that as a as a medical student, actually. Yeah. Let's get in on those code strokes. Get in there. <laughs> um, all right. So, basically, this CTA is a pretty simple... Um, Scan, well, the principle behind it is quite simple. You're looking for a filling defect. If there's a clot there, it means contrast isn't passing through. It takes quite a bit of practice to learn how to follow the arteries, especially when they get smaller in the M2, M3 branches. But again, that's not something you're going to get by listening to me rabbit on. You've got to get onto, a, got a, onto an imaging program and just practice it. It's a pretty good test. Um, up to 100% sensitivity for large vessel stenosis, so like proximal MCA strokes. All right, what's next? So the next is the CT perfusion scan. Mm. So it, it it's basically a reformatting of the CTA. You can use that's why we use the large bore cannula actually because contrast needs to flow quite quickly for this to work. But basically, CT perfusion looks at the volume of contrast in different parts of the brain and how quickly it got there, and uses that to nut out two things. Um, first, it can help diagnose a stroke. Uh, I've seen plenty of cases where the plain brain was normal. The CTA, you couldn't see any feeling defect. But when you look at the CT perfusion, that's when you can you finally diagnose the stroke. But the other really cool thing CT perfusions can do is differentiate between the infarct core and the ischemic penumbra around it. And that's incredibly useful for strokes, as you can imagine, because it tells you which brain is definitely dead forever and which brain you can save. Which is really all you care about in any situation, isn't it? What, yeah. You know, the things you can't change and the things you can. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
that's that's what you got to stress out about. And I think the way stroke uh, therapy is going to go actually is more relying on the CTP than uh, than how long it's been since the stroke. Who cares? Like if it's been 20 hours since the stroke, but they've still got a huge penumbra, why would you not intervene there? And there was actually a big trial called the DAWN trial released last year that demonstrated exactly that, saying that you could sometimes intervene up to 24 hours post if you select the right patients with a big ischemic penumbra and plenty of collaterals keeping that brain alive. Mm, Interesting kind of um, implications for kind of stroke protocols there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stroke <laughs> physicians are going to be busy. Like, they certainly haven't done themselves any favours. No, it's a dangerous study to do, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Yeah, a, lot of, a lot of midnight calls, but what can you do? All right, so I'm about to dive into some real nitty-gritty about the CT perfusion, so you really don't need to know this stuff, but it's interesting, I think. Um, so there's three main things that a CT perfusion calculates One is cerebral blood flow, which is the volume of blood passing through a given amount of brain per unit time. The mean transit time, which is another kind of measure of flow, basically. The average time in seconds that red blood cells spend within a a determinate volume. And then finally, cerebral blood volume, which looks at the volume um, of blood in a given amount of brain tissue. And on a really simple level that I understand, the way you work out what's core and what's penumbra is looking at volume and looking at flow you imagine in the in the brain that's dead that there's nothing you can do about um, it's going to have less volume there's going to be less actual blood in that part of the brain um, and the flow will obviously be decreased as well but the the brain you can say the penumbra that will often have normal volumes um, because eventually the blood you know does get there um, it just takes more time so the the flow is reduced and the, the transit time is increased, but the actual cerebral blood volume is, is usually normal or sometimes even increased um, due to kind of auto-regulatory mechanisms. But you don't have to worry too much about this <laughs> because usually it'll come up as two nice colors. Yeah. And <laughs> might the blue be bit green, and the red bit. Blue and a red bit. So <laughs> that's the slightly simpler way of understanding that. You just listened to nothing of what I just said <laughs> and then waited for me to pause. If you don't doubt. And yeah. then said, <laughs> you don't need to worry about that. It's interesting yeah. though. It's cool. All right. So let's quickly resummarize imaging, Scott. Yeah. So as quickly as you can, you want to get them to the CT. And you're first going to do, um, they should only go there once. You should try and get everything done while they're there. But first you should do a CT non-contrast. And if there's no hemorrhage there, then you'd be looking at doing a CTA to see if you can pick up a subtler stroke that you didn't pick up on the CT and a um, CT perfusion scan to kind of assess the penumbra and Mm. if you can do anything useful or if you can just hold their hand. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right, so back to our case. So Anne with an NHSS of 25, she's had a huge stroke. CT brain shows a hyperdense left MCA sign, but she's had that aortic valve surgery and it's probably from the heart, so it's an old clot, you can see it. Uh, and But luckily, there's none of these ischemic changes. The, the insular ribbon is intact. And then you do a CT angiogram, shows a big filling defect. She's got a big proximal left MCA stroke and a CT perfusion that shows a very small core very small blue bit and a huge red penumbra around it so this is a real opportunity so what do you do next thrombolyze yeah yeah so what is thrombolysis scott so thrombolyze thrombolysis uses a tissue plasminogen activator Mm. and the important thing to remember is it's not like other anticoagulants where they're just preventing clots from forming it's a clot buster yeah exactly so we're a bit old school in stroke we use alteplase 
um, rather than tenecteplase that they use in um, myocardial infarctions. But tenecteplase is in the pipeline. There's a whole bunch of studies that have happened this year, and it looks like it probably works much, much better. So what's your, So why are we worried about the onset so much? Um, what's the onset time that you can still thrombolize within? So um, the studies have assessed periods up to 4.5 hours and showed a benefit. Yeah, exactly. Um, 4.5 to 6, I think, is pretty equivocal still. Yeah. Yeah, so we don't do 4.5 to 6, but up to 4.5 hours you can thrombolize. And um, so say Anne, she's come in within an hour. She's still got three and a half hours. We can relax. We can have our tea break, right? Is that how it works? Uh, Not quite. (laughs) (laughs) So even if you're within those periods, it's not just kind of binary in the period, out of the period. Time is brain. Yeah. And somewhere I wrote down some facts that I don't have in front of me, but um, (laughs) I think it's you lose something... How many how many neurons a minute do you lose? <laughs> <laughs> a lot. A lot. So for millions, every, you lose millions of neurons a minute. For every fifteen minutes, um, the odds of walking independently increase by four percent, which is what like so the hospital I work at is a like very pro stroke and coach strokes are like extremely slick and we've got RED on board and everything works well. But when I've worked in hospitals that don't quite have that culture, it's so frustrating to like. Mm be sitting with the clerks at the front like painstakingly you know making the stickers and just doing all this other bs (laughs) just yelling time is brains i don't know i've had a lot of that experience to be honest (laughs) i've had some uh code strokes and the response from switch has been what's a code stroke (laughs) but we won't talk about specifics yeah um all right so how good is is thrombolysis um so within three hours of onset 33 percent of patients had a good outcome of thrombolysis versus 23 percent um with control um and i imagine that would be even better like within the first hour would probably be much better than that and then three between three and 4.5 hours it's a bit dicier so 35 percent of patients had a good outcome versus 30 percent in the control group and that also takes into account the increased risk of bleeding Mm. so it's including balancing off against that, you're still up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, so do we thrombolize everyone or is there some list of contraindications that you should have in your phone and look at prior to thrombolizing someone? Yeah, so systematic is the key (laughs) point here. Yeah, don't try and remember this list. Just look it up um, when it actually comes to the time of thrombolizing someone. So the contraindications to thrombolysis, first you've got your reversible stuff, Scott. Yeah, so you want to check that the BSLs over mm. we've got two point seven. Yeah, and the BP is not over one hundred eighty five, which could increase the risk of a hemorrhagic transformation. Yeah. But you can fix that quickly. You don't have to, you know, give them some amlodipine and wait half an hour. With that cannula you've put in for the CTA, pop through some hydralazine. Give twenty milligrams of hydralazine. You can give up to two hundred milligrams and just keep giving until it comes down. All right, and then the absolute contraindications. Um, so remember on that plain brain, we talked about looking for ischemic changes. And if it looks like those ischemic changes are greater than one third of the MCA area, they're beyond our help and thrombolizing will just massively increase their risk of hemorrhagic transformation. So we don't thrombolize those patients. Um, and then other things that are going to really increase the risk of bleeding, obviously, is low platelets. So platelets less than 100. Um, I've heard of patients dying... Um, because they were very thrombocytopenic and were given thrombolysis. 
Having said that, we don't, you know, send off an FB and wait two hours for the platelets to come back for everyone. But if in their past history they've had some kind of leukemia or recent chemo or anything to suspect, really low platelets, mm. you've got to think twice. And the other ones are also kind of problems with blood clotting. Yeah. So um, abnormal APTT. So again, you don't wait for that. But if they've got a history of that or they've been on heparin recently. Yeah. And the, I guess the most common contraindication here may be... Um, terms of clotting like if they're on warfarin and if their INR is over 1.7 yeah or any other other type of the new anticoagulants yeah so if they're therapeutic basically then you can't um, thrombolize them yeah exactly um all right so then there's a long list of relative contraindications i'll read them very quickly but the the general gist is if they've had previous bleeding particularly intracranially or they've had some kind of procedure or event that has put them at increased risk of bleeding um, you need to think twice, but they're relative contraindications for a reason. Like strokes are a big deal. Like if you've had a big MCA stroke, most people would, you know, take some GI bleeding over the next couple of days rather than having this massive stroke. So it's got to be a pretty big risk for you to seriously decide not to thrombolize them. Mm. Um, so those relative contraindications are previous bleeds intracranially ever or any um, GI bleeding in the last 21 days. Um head trauma or stroke within the last three months, MI within three months, surgery within 14 days, or a non-compressible arterial puncture within seven days. Don't try and memorize that list from me rabbiting on. Just have have the list, look up the list when it comes yeah. to thrombolysis. So when you go see the patient, yeah. if you can print out the NIHHS and um, a list of contraindications. Yeah, and if you're with a stroke team, if you're with a registrar, that's a really useful thing you can do for them. Mm. Um, all right, so Anne, she came in, she's on warfarin, but she's had this aortic valve replacement. Um, but just because you're on warfarin doesn't mean you, you can't thrombolize them. You just test the INR. So you do that with a point-of-care machine, so you can test that really quickly. Um, and if the INR is greater than 1.7, you can't thrombolize. And her INR is too, so we can't thrombolize her, unfortunately. So is there any other type of intervention that we could maybe do, Scott, or do we mm. sit on our hands? Well, you know, we can also sit on our hands if we feel <laughs> like it. You know, we've, we've been rushing around trying to save <laughs> it's our brain. time for a tea break. Time guys. for a tea break. <laughs> but clot retrieval is a new kind of exploding field. Yeah. Very exciting. Very exciting stuff. Works really well. So that's physically putting a wire in the brain, pulling out the clot. And uh, one of the key studies um, the, the, for this clot retrieval was actually done here in Melbourne. Um, so it's pretty exciting, something to be proud of. That was the Extend IA trial. And clot retrieval works much better than thrombolysis, so it's now standard of care. Everyone should be getting it. Um, and basically the reason for that, it's much, much better recanalizing um, arteries of opening up flow. And there were initially lots of studies that were negative that showed this doesn't work and people were... Um, giving up on it but that was just because the old stents the old um, techniques they had for doing it just weren't regularly opening up those arteries but now I've got much better stuff and uh, we open up those arteries regularly and it works really well mm. so the time window the key thing for you guys to know is the time window is a little bit different so now we don't call a code stroke if it's more than 4.5 hours oh sorry we used to not call code strokes if it was more than 4.5 hours but now that's been pushed out to six because of a clot treble so it works within six hours it's a bit different for basilar strokes it might actually be as long as 24 hours um, because patients often have a really stuttering course and it's such a severe stroke but generally six hours is the time window that you do clot retrieval in 
And are there any contraindications, Darvel, to clot retrieval? Not really, to be honest. The main one I've seen is um, having a poor MRS, so the scale we talked about before. So people that are really, really poor function, there isn't much function to be gained. Um, we often don't do that, but I think that's more of a health economics thing rather than anything else. And that's very variable from person to person, centre to centre. And just to reiterate, um, if someone is a candidate for thrombolysis as well, you you do thrombolysis and then you also do clot retrieval? Yeah, so that's a really important point. I should have emphasised more. You, you do both. Yeah. Yeah. So at the moment we, we thrombolyse and then we do clot retrieval. But then if you can't thrombolyse, you can still do clot retrieval. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a really good point. So it's really effective. So thrombolysis doesn't work that well because a lot of these clots, as, as we've said, are from the heart. They've been sitting there for ages. It's going to take more than a squirt of plasminogen to break them up. Um, you need to physically go in there and pull them out. Um, so the rate of functional independence was 46% um, without clot retrieval, and that drops to 27% with clot retrieval with an odds ratio of 235 and the really impressive thing is the number needed to treat. So the number needed to treat and extend IA that Melbourne trial that we're all so proud of was 3.2. That's crazy. I've never heard of any other study showing that kind of number needed to treat. Mm. I think the things that the things that um, would show that kind of number needed to treat would just be unethical to study, like parachute studies kind of thing. Or <laughs> antibiotics for sepsis or something, or fluids but, for sepsis. But have we studied that? <laughs> it's obviously works. So yeah, good stuff. Very exciting that it's working and we've finally got something to do. All right, so for Anne, she didn't um, she did, didn't uh, do that well, unfortunately. So she went down for clot retrieval, but by the time she um, this all happened in the country, and by the time she got down to Melbourne, um, it was it was pretty late in the course of the stroke, and she remained with a very high NHSS, more than twenty. Mm, so hopefully in the future when we've got our clot buster out here working in the country, he'll yeah. be changing these outcomes. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, so just quickly, so with Anne, what would you do uh, imaging-wise after a couple of days to see how big the stroke was in the end? Yep, so we'd usually do an MRI. Yeah, yeah. Um, you don't have to do the full MRI sequencing. Um, you can do just the diffusion-weighted imaging, the quick and dirty one. And it's it's my favorite radiology to read. Like, it's <laughs> it's really radiology for dummies. Yeah, perfect for Scott. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the white bits on the MRI are where the stroke is. It just lights up. Um, the pathophysiology, I don't understand super well, but um, diffusion-weighted imaging looks at how water moves around in the brain. And if you've had a stroke, it's restricted to certain areas, and that's why it lights up. Um, the other the other point when you're reading DWIs um, is they always always come with another type of scan called ADC or apparent diffusion coefficient. Um, so ADC is basically the opposite to DWI. So if it's white on DWI, it should be black on ADC. There should be a big hole in the brain where that white bit was on the DWI. And if it, if it doesn't have that relationship between the two, it's probably artifact on the DWI. All right, so we've come to the end of another long podcast. It just keep getting longer. Sorry. <laughs> there's, some, there's some good stuff in there, though. There's some hopefully. good stuff that you can mine. If you're zoned it. in enough. Yeah. yeah I, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> good. All right, so would, the take-home points here would be what for the history? So your abbreviated history you're not asking them about their pets and whether they've been to uzbekistan mm. you want to really get a clear idea of the onset timing it from 
um, when they were last normal, which will guide whether you do thrombolysis or not. And then you just want to get an idea of their functional status and if they're on any anticoagulants or have any, any other contraindications to thrombolysis. Yep. And the examination is not your Italian Connor exam. It's a specific one called the NHSS scale, which I recommend you use an app for so you don't miss anything. For imaging, you do a CT brain first, which you're mostly looking for a hemorrhage, even a small subdural or something like that. It's really important to pick up. But you can see the hyperdense artery sign or some loss of gray-white differentiation indicating an ischemic stroke. Yeah. Um, then you'll also do a CTA. So you're looking for a filling defect yep. in some of the art- big arteries there. CT perfusion is next, which is looking at the core versus the penumbra. Mm, so what, what can we change? And then you're making sure you get the very quick thrombolysis, time is brain, as quick as you can, but mm. must be within 4.5 hours. Yeah. And uh, go through the contraindications list before you give someone thrombolysis because it's pretty long. But remember, a lot of them are relative contraindications and you've got to make a clinical decision. But you're not going to be doing that as an intern. <laughs> Just pick, pick up those contraindications and, and then ask someone more senior to make the final decision. Yeah. And hopefully, if your center has it, or if you can transport someone there, clot retrieval as well. Yeah. Your emerging, amazing mm. therapy. Mm. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, Thanks, Davo. Leave us a like on Facebook. That makes me feel good. Um, or a review. Yeah. That makes me feel good, too. Yeah. Witty comments. Mm. You know. Always appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys.